Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and this morning with me is my wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're in a very interesting discussion here about what would be improvements and changes, some you know, large changes to our current constitution. Because as we look at the out-of-control federal government uh, and its intrusion into every corner and every area of our life, this is the opposite of what our founders envisioned. In fact, you might call this a new form of servitude. That is a new feudalism that has uh, uh, come upon us. And most uh, average Americans are, are serfs for the federal government for at least uh, six to seven months of the year. That is not just the federal, state, and local governments included, but uh, they're serving uh, more than 50% of their fruit, that is the fruit of their labors, winds up going to the civil government. And, you know, if you look at what our founders said, that, that'll be way beyond any tyranny that they could even envision. In fact, they, when you look at what the taxes that King George III were imposing, oh, things like the tea tax, it was only 1%. It was a very small thing, but it wasn't a matter for our founders of the amount, actually. It was the principle that uh, taxation without representation is impermissible for a free people. That, along with a long list of 26 other reasons in the Declaration of Independence, led them to this conclusion. The king, being such a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. So when we examine our founders, we find that they were very, very concerned about the executive power of the executive branch of government. By the way, that's exactly what the king was in England. He was the executive branch, the head of the executive branch. The legislative branch was parliament, and then there was a judicial branch as well, uh, the court systems of England. So they were very concerned as they crafted our constitution to limit and restrict the powers of the president. They did not want an imperial presidency. They did not want another king or another tyrant. They wanted the executive to do a simple function. That is execute the law, apply the law in the civil body politic and uh, bring uh, punishment and so forth to those who violate the law. And that is specifically violate the federal law. And by the way, the federal law is limited to those areas where the people, we the people through the constitution granted the federal government limited, delegated, enumerated powers over certain subjects, but not powers over other subjects. So, for example, you, you take a, a thing like uh, what, what, what happens today in the federal involvement in every business transaction going on uh, through OSHA and, and EPA and a number of other federal agencies that really are unconstitutional in, in their, their shape and structure. But that means that the federal government has its fingers in everybody's business. And that was not our founder's desire, not our founder's design. So we see that while the words of the Constitution and the understanding of our founders were very clear, clearly we're not following those today. So what would we do to help make it certain that the president stays within the boundaries of the powers defined by the Constitution? Because we've had presidents, so the 16th president, for example, or FDR, for another example, Woodrow Wilson, and many, many others, especially in LBJ and, and following uh, his lead, 
many presidents who decided they can draw the boundaries of their powers any way they like. You know, they were the creators of the limits. And of course, when the federal government becomes the determiner of the limits of its own powers, look out, the sky is the limit. They may determine that, you know, you can't own a gun. They may determine that uh, we don't like the food you're eating, or we want you to get this shot in your arm that we think is good for you, but you don't, you can't question it. And by the way, if you do question it, we're going to put the pressure on through social media to see you deplatformed and and uh, defunded, and so on and on it goes. So the tyranny that we're facing from Washington D.C. is largely due to allowing the executive branch, that is specifically the president and all the agencies under the president, to draw their own limits to what they believe their powers are. And that is unconstitutional. That's a violation of our republic because it's we, the people, that determine the limits of the powers of the government because the government is there to serve us. We're not servants of the government. The government is our servant and to serve us in protecting our God-given rights. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts about uh, the executive branch as we continue? We've already talked about Section 1, but as we continue in this study on the executive branch. Well, Article 2, Section 2 of the current Constitution is where the powers of the president are described. Corresponding powers would be described in Article 5, Section 2 under a new Constitution. Let's take a look at Section 2, and particularly the section about um, the president as commander-in-chief. The section begins... The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. The section of the current Constitution has been badly abused, particularly the part that states and of the militia of the uh, several states when called into the actual service of the United States. Presidents have interpreted this to mean that they have plenary power to activate military units under state control without the necessity of a declaration of war by Congress. Congress has compounded the problem by assuming that it can pass a law that modifies the intent of the Constitution, such as the War Powers Act of 1973. Of all the powers granted to the federal government, the power to initiate war is the most formidable. Initiate is the operative word in understanding where the powers of the president ought to be limited. There's no doubt that individuals enjoy the right to defend themselves with arms if necessary, uh, if any lesson has burned into the minds of the citizenry, it is of American military personnel defending themselves against the sneak attack of the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. None of those made an attempt to contact Congress and ask, may we shoot back? Our right to defend ourselves is outside of the scope of constitutions because it is a natural right. We may later formally declare war on an aggressor. But at the point of the initial attack by an enemy, no constitutional provision prevents appropriate defense. War powers, then, are about initiating war upon another nation before a potential enemy initiates action against the people of the United States. The conditions under which offensive war are justified are rare, which is why a formal declaration of war is described in constitutions. Declarations of war make entire nations the entire the, I'm sorry, the official enemies of the United States. Same principles apply to letters of mark and reprisal that would allow the United States to take action against an aggressor that was not a nation state, such as Al-Qaeda. <clears throat> the mechanisms of war declaration and letters of mark and reprisal are intentionally designed to inhibit knee-jerk responses 
to the propaganda that typically precedes war. Wars are incredibly easy to get into and a nightmare to extract from. Deliberation is necessary, and it is also necessary that the representatives of the people make these momentous decisions. Uh, making these momentous decisions ought to be accountable to the people. Therefore, under a new constitution, corresponding language would be, and in the militia of the several states, when called into the actual service of the United States under a declaration of war or letters of mark and reprisal. Let's look at advising the president. This language would be retained as obvious. The president may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective office, pardons and reprieves. The following language would be removed from the Constitution. The president shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases, cases of impeachment. The function of the president is to execute the will of the people, as interpreted by the representatives in Congress. The president is not a representative of the people. If this power is to be exercised by the federal government, it should be exercised by Congress. <clears throat> Making treaties. Article 2, Section 2 of the current Constitution continues. He shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of senators present concur. This would be modified to present shall have the power to negotiate treaties on behalf of the Senate. Such draft treaties shall become law, provided two-thirds of the uh, senators present concur. No draft treaty uh, that is inconsistent with the Constitution shall be uh, considered. There are two parts to these changes. One, the substitution of the word negotiate for the word make treaties, and two, the condition that no tre treaty may contradict a new constitution. <clears throat> Concerning the first change, it may be argued that they result in the same powers being granted to the president. <clears throat> Admittedly, the language is psychological, but the difference has been historically significant. Under the current constitution, the language encourages presidents to believe they make treaties, and it is the job of the Senate to rubber stamp them. There may be no better example than the treaties that were effectively made by Franklin Roosevelt at the Tehran and Yalta Conference in the years of World War II. Roosevelt's attitude about Stalin may be summarized in his letter to Churchill of 1942. I think I can personally handle Stalin better than your foreign office or my State Department. It was Roosevelt promoted both conferences, believing his personality would convert Stalin to be a better citizen of the world. History conclusively demonstrates how wrong he was. <clears throat> Understand why presidents should never be allowed to make treaties. Consider these revelations from James Bovard's article in the June 2020 edition of Future of Freedom. The Roosevelt administration engineered a movie tribute to Stalin, Mission to Moscow, that was so slavish that Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich observed that no Soviet propaganda agency would dare to present such outrageous lies. In his 1944 State of the Union address, Roosevelt denounced those Americans with such suspicious souls who feared that I had made commitments for the future which might pledge this nation to secret treaties with Stalin at the summit of allied leaders in Tehran the previous month. Roosevelt helped to set the two-tier attack that permeated much, much of post-war American foreign policy, denouncing cynics while betraying foreigners 
whom the U.S. claimed to be championing. Prior to the Yalta conference, Roosevelt confided to the U.S. ambassador to Russia that he believed that if he gave Stalin everything I possibly can and ask for nothing in return, noblesse oblige, he will try to annex anything and will work with me for a world of democracy and peace. <clears throat> Stalin wanted assurances from Roosevelt and Churchill that millions of Soviet citizens who had been captured during the war by the Germans or who had abandoned the Soviet Union would be forcibly returned. After the war ended, <clears throat> Operation Keelhaul forcibly sent two million Soviets to certain death or long-term imprisonment in Siberia or elsewhere. Alexander Solzhenitsyn called Operation Keelhaul the last secret of World War II, and it was covered up or ignored by Western media until the 1970s. The fact is that those mass deaths were facilitated by the U.S. and British government, rarely rated even an asterisk by the media beloved historians who tout the good war. If there's evidence that the Senate ever advised or consented to the Yalta Agreement, it is well hidden. The universally recognized disaster and betrayal of Eastern European people is now, at best, attributed to the poor judgment of an aging Franklin Roosevelt. But how would that happen? For many of the United States, traumatized by the Great Depression immediately followed by the horror of World War II, Roosevelt, the wartime leader of a free nation, had assumed almost godlike stature. Perhaps Roosevelt believes that as well, particularly when he believes that if he gave Stalin everything I possibly can and ask for nothing in return, noblesse oblige, he won't try to annex anything and will work with me for a world of democracy and peace. Joseph Stalin was not one of Roosevelt's Hudson River aristocracy neighbors who separated Roosevelt from the harsh reality of the real world. He was a revolutionary thug who was responsible for the executions of millions of people. According to a Wikipedia article, prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the archival revelations, some historians estimated that the numbers killed by Stalin's regime were 20 million or higher. After the Soviet Union dissolved, evidence from the Soviet archives was declassified and researchers were allowed to study it. This contained official records of 799,455 executions between 1921 and 1953, around 1.7 million deaths in the Gulag, <clears throat> and some 390,000 deaths during the uh, degulagization, forced resettlement, and up to 400,000 deaths of persons deported during the 1940s, with a total of 3.3 uh, million officially recorded victims in these categories. Only a person living in his personal dream uh, would have expected noblesse oblige from Stalin. This, however, is a concern when concentrating the power to make treaties in a single person. <clears throat> the text, no draft treaty shall become law that is not consistent with the Constitution of the United States, has been inserted to prevent the executive branch from attempting to negotiate treaties that violate the Constitution of the United States. Specifically, this makes international gun control and vaccine passport treaties null and void <clears throat> before they reach the Senate for its advice and consent. Appointment of ambassadors. <clears throat> Article 2, Section 2 describes the presidential power of appointing ambassadors with the advice and consent of the Senate. This need not be changed since 
sound organizational procedures suggest that an executive should be able to select subordinate members of the executive's advisory team, appointment of judges to the Supreme Court. This power would be denied to the president and executed by the council, uh, executed instead by the council of states if necessary. <clears throat> the difference between the appointment of ambassadors and the appointment of Supreme Court justices is that the former offices are within the realm of the executive branch, whereas the latter are for another branch of government, violation of the principle of separation of powers. Appointment of all other officers of the United States. <clears throat> Third language is, the president shall have the power to appoint all other officers of the United States <clears throat> whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law Congress made by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of governments. <clears throat> the idea is a complete violation of limited federal government and the separation of powers. The first violation is granting Congress the power to create offices. The powers of the federal government must be strictly limited. Congress should not have the power to alter the organization of the federal government. That fundamentally alters the intent of the contract among the states to create a federal governing entity. If the contract is to be fundamentally modified, <clears throat> that should be that should only be done by the Council of States. Concerning the president nominating all federal officers, <clears throat> that power must be restricted to functions uh, assigned to the executive branch of the Council of States or by the Council of States. <clears throat> uh, Proposed replacement language is the appointment of all other members of the executive branch of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by the Council of States, shall be made through nomination by the President and with the advice and consent of the Senate, filling vacancies in the executive branch. The language in, the new con in a new constitution would be slightly modified to read, the President shall have the power to fill up all vacancies in the executive branch. It may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their current session. <clears throat> There's no reason why interim appointments should exist beyond the current session. Congress is in recess at the end of that Congress's normal term. It is a minor inconvenience to wait for the convening of the following Congress. This is the entire current text of Section 3. He shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union, recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all officers of the United States. All assumptions to the president being a he should be replaced with the president. Also, the idea that the president may give an address to Congress from time to time should be replaced with annually. Impeachment, which is the subject of Section 4. Section 4 currently reads, President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and convic conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. That is right. The Constitution is silent on these officials even supporting the Constitution, much less defending it. 
A new constitution's Article 5, Section 4 would read, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for failure to defend the Constitution of the United States and for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Notice that there is nothing in the current Constitution specifying the Office of Attorney General of the United States, although the office was created within the executive branch by Congress during Washington's first administration. And no one seems to have questioned the idea since. That question will be addressed while describing the judicial branch for a new constitution. Thank you, Phil. Excellent. Uh, again, to limit the power of the executive branch, limit the power of the president to prevent what we have currently experienced of the imperial uh, presidency. And you're absolutely right about the declaration of war powers. That needs to be limited. And the, the uh, president is not to have any decision about going to war, as you were right to mention that the 1973 War Powers Act basically gave the president a leash of, oh, I guess about 60 to 90 days that he could uh, get troops committed to action somewhere in the world, anywhere in the world he chose, basically. And if uh, within the first 30 days of that time, if uh, you know Congress did not declare war, then the president had 60 days by which to extricate all of those those soldiers that he'd put into the field. So anyway, that that, that War Powers Act is a complete uh, debacle in terms of uh, the president basically being able to declare war, even if it's only for 90 days. Uh, again, you're absolutely right. The right to self-defense is always there. So if our uh, troops are attacked uh, wherever they are, they have the right to defend themselves from those attacks. But the whole problem we see is that uh, since World War II, which, by the way, is the last time the Congress actually declared war. And that may come as an astonishment to many of our listeners that what? You mean uh, the Korean War was not declared? Yeah, the Korean War was never declared. Vietnam, no, that was not declared. Uh, the Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, and on and on the list goes of all the actions militarily around the world that have been taken by our government have really been initiated by the president. You know, it was Truman that decided on Korea. It's like, uh, we're not going to ask, uh, and actually the evil thing that took place there was Truman uh, took direction, not from Congress, which is what our constitution says regarding war, that you're supposed to take direction from Congress. That's the only uh, way that uh, war should be declared. Instead, Truman took direction from the United Nations. And so we kind of became the policemen of the United Nations doing the will of the National Security Council or whatever body there in the United Nations to decide, hey, there, there's where we need to uh, take some police action around the world. That's not the job of the United States military to be the policemen of the world. And so this whole idea of uh, the war powers of 1973, as well as the undeclared wars, has shown the disaster Disaster in two regards. Obviously, a disaster to each of those countries where these unconstitutional wars have been committed uh, and people have died and their infrastructure and their nations have been destroyed and, and uh, you know, plundered. So that's one, one uh, uh, object of disaster. But the other object of disaster is our own country. We're uh, 32 trillion in some estimates. And uh, obviously, that doesn't count unfunded mandates, which takes us well over $120 trillion in debt. And you look at the amount of money we have spent over there in the Middle East since 9-11, uh, it's trillions upon trillions of dollars. So the American people are being progressively impoverished. In fact, I would argue that we're being made debt slaves 
and our next generations are being made death slaves by all the perpetual wars that our military have been fighting, all without congressional approval, all without anything but the president saying, hey, I'm going to commit troops to here and there. And and uh, yeah, that is definitely what needs to be stopped. And I think what you've designed here uh, would bring that to a halt. Congress must declare war. The president has no war powers. The president effectively is not even the uh, commander in chief until there is a declaration of war. He has no power over the militia of the several states that are supposed to be called up in time of war. No power over them until there is a declaration of war. Now, it is true that he is the commander of the Navy, which is the ongoing uh, military force. You can't uh, uh, build a Navy overnight. So our founders recognized that there needed to be a, a standing Navy but they did not want a standing army. Uh, they wanted to be the army strictly under the state control. That is, the state militias were the army, and that's what our founders envisioned, until there is a declaration of war. And then all of those state militias come under uh, the president as the commander and chief. So you're absolutely right. The power of the president regarding his role as commander in chief has been completely twisted, distorted, and abused uh, when the Founders' design was good to keep the president uh, unable to take action, uh, and and I think what we're proposing here would would reduce that such that the president is not able to do the sort of military actions that he is doing today. Just consider uh, w- one other aspect of this that we need to remember: a declaration of war is a declaration of war against another actual nation state. That's right, a nation state. We have to mention that. Because what have we been suffering under since 9-11? A war on terror. Well, wait a minute. Is terror a particular location on Earth? Is there, is there a, you know, some nation state called terror? No, of course not. Terror is the tactic of our enemy. It's not an actual people group, a nation state. And so a declaration of war cannot be a war on terrorism or you know, silly things like a war on drugs or a war on obesity or a war on poverty, all the federal ways in which they squander endless money and expand the power of the federal government unconstitutionally. But yes, so we need to go back to the standard and we need to be certain that it is a declaration of war. And I'm glad you also bring up letters of mark and reprisal because after 9-11, there was only one congressman who properly called for this constitutional provision that hasn't been used. I don't think till, the way, till you go all the way back to uh, the early uh, 19th century, the letter of market reprisal allows individuals or groups of individuals, <coughs> excuse me, to uh, take military action against specific targets. That is, you're not taking military action against the nation state, but someone in a particular nation state. And Ron Paul, the, the congressman at the time, called for letters of market reprisal against uh, a supposed author of the 9-11 attack. Uh, Saddam. Uh, and and if, if that was done, then instead of going to war against Afghanistan and ultimately uh, Iraq, and so all the wars that we've been engaged in there in the Middle East, you would have said, okay, <coughs> there's a specific individual and his henchmen that we want to take down. And it might communicate to the Pakistan where supposedly he was hiding in a cave and say, okay, uh, this is what we've decided. And uh, will you allow our, our men <laughs> not our military, but private, uh, you know, mark and reprisal group to go in and find him uh, and bring him to justice. That would have been something that did not engulf our entire uh, uh, military in uh, endless wars. I mean, because you say, really, 
the Middle Eastern wars have not ended. It's just to develop the brand new branch of it there between Israel and Hamas that obviously we're backing Israel, which ties us in closely with that war, just as we've gotten involved in the war in, in Ukraine. In the sense, what's going on there is we're actually fighting a proxy war, <coughs> excuse me, proxy war against the Russians, a very dangerous thing to do. And certainly a war against Russia should be something that Congress representing the people makes a decision about, not the president just say, ah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to send billions and billions of dollars to the Ukraine and uh, uh, not declare war against Russia, but act as if we are at war against Russia. By the way, the Russians are no no dupes. They know what's going on. They know this is a proxy war, and they have said so. <coughs> so that uh, we're putting ourselves in danger, really, of uh, uh, bringing a, a conflagration that you might call World War III, where war in the Middle East and war in the far European theater of the Ukraine, and, and who knows what China might do as a result of all of that taking advantage. I mean, we're, we're walking into something that is an absolute nightmare. But it all comes from not following the Constitution, that the Congress is to make a declaration of war and declare a particular nation state to be an enemy of the United States that we are at war with. And if it's not a nation state, just as you mentioned, such as Al-Qaeda, then of course that must be mob letters of mark and reprisal, uh, not a, a declaration of war. So we need to, we need to limit very severely the war-making powers in our country, sadly, is known around the world as the, the maker of many, many wars and the backer of overthrow through our CIA, which, by the way, is another agency that we need to be sure not only gets abolished, is never, ever recreated. We should never allow the kind of wicked powers that the CIA has uh, to assassinate foreign officials and to do all kinds of evil, overthrow governments uh, and install puppet governments, all that should be absolutely forbidden. And again, that may be something that needs to be stated at the secondary level uh, in, in a constitutional structure rather than in the first level, which is which is the actual text of the Constitution that we're, that we're talking about. So yes, uh, restricting the power, powers of the president to make war such that Congress declares it, the president just carries out the wishes uh, of Congress in, in that regard. And uh, uh, regarding partisan reprieves, this is an interesting one because when we look at the history of this, yikes, <laughs> who did uh, Obama pardon? Who did Clinton pardon? Pardon uh, political uh, cronies, political contributors, uh, some who had contributed millions of dollars to their campaign, interestingly got pardoned, some at the last 11th hour just before the president uh, uh, was leaving office. But this power of pardons, and yeah, this has been much abused, uh, and we see it, it, it functioning in a way. And uh, I think it might be appropriate that the president is not the one who has this power at all. Perhaps it would be uh, the Council of the States, uh, or perhaps it would be something exercised by Congress, but I don't think it's something the president should be exercising, given what we have seen clearly has been the propensity of politicians to use the granting pardons as a payback for some political favor or some financial, you know, financial contribution to their, their campaign, all of those things are extremely crooked. If a person has committed a crime and they're incarcerated for that crime or fined for that crime, uh, hey, you know, they should be punished for it uh, unless Congress or perhaps the Council of States decides that there was some injustice in uh, in the granting of or, or the declaration of a judgment against that individual. So turning to making treaties, 
uh, here's uh, uh, an enormous issue that uh, we need to not only have a clear language in the text of the Constitution, but I think it also calls for a secondary level because we have things going on that call themselves uh, that, that don't call themselves treaties, but have the power of a treaty. And I think they're doing this as a trick by which they can avoid the Senate confirmation process so that uh, it's much easier to force our country into uh, complying with certain things. So, for example, the World Health Organization, one of the worst organizations in the world, I believe, but uh, the World Health Organization next April is poised to say that it has the power uh, if all the nation states that are you know, part of the World Health Organization vote to say, yes, we approve of this, that they, the World Health Organization, will then get to declare pandemics, and they've redefined the term plan- pandemic, by the way, such that uh, it's no longer what it used to be, so much easier then to declare a pandemic. Furthermore, uh, they get to determine what must happen in each nation's state of the world. They get to dictate the policies that must be enforced by every nation. In other words, the World Health Organization becomes the global tyrant in control of everything, but they're doing it through a method not called a treaty. So they're claiming that when they pass this next April or May, I've forgotten exactly which, but uh, 2024, when they pass this, the Senate of the United States does not get to vote on it, up or down. It's simply law because, well, they said it's law. Uh, you know, And this kind of irrational power been turned over to international bodies of the United Nations is very, very dangerous because what if they you know, declared a a pandemic and said, everybody in the world has to give this shot, get this shot that we assign you. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That means everybody in the world does not have bodily autonomy? What about that phrase that the women's rights movement was always running up the flag? My body, my choice. Well, what happened to the scandemic where uh, we were told, no, no, you don't get to choose. You got to take this shot whether you want it or not. And if you don't want it, you got to lose your job and so on and so forth, or you're going to be restricted from... anyway disaster. And we don't want to see that disaster repeated. But there needs to be a a mechanism by which we can prevent that from happening. Of course, it's not just the World Health Organization that's doing this avoidance of, uh, 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 you know, a treaty, a formal treaty. There's trade agreements that avoid this as well. And and various other international agreements that, because they're not calling themselves treaties, they say, well, you know, we don't need to ask the Senate's permission and approval for this to be ratified. All we need is the signature of the president. This, perhaps at a second level in our uh, this design here, needs to be forbidden. You can call it something else, but if it looks like a treaty and it walks like a treaty and it quacks like a treaty, well, then it is a treaty, it, it, regardless of what name uh, you give it. And by the way, I pray and hope that we can stop the World Health Organization from becoming the global tyrant that it is on track to become uh, next spring if it gets its wicked way. What are your thoughts, uh, Phil? Uh, Essentially, the idea of the CIA eliminated, uh, that will be partially addressed in the next show when we talk about the prosecutorial role being separated out from the executive role. But I don't think it gets covered enough. I think you've made a very good point about that. We need to look at the first level of language, I think, uh, as we go through this. And, and, you know, we're discovering some things ourselves about, whoops, uh, you know, uh, maybe this doesn't quite fit. This doesn't quite do the job. We need to go back over that language. So I I think that's a very good example. Certainly the intent of a new constitution would be to eliminate organizations like the CIA and eliminate 
these clandestine uh, operations where we're assassinating um, and toppling heads of government and that sort of thing. I can't imagine, you know, how we ever fell into that immorality. As far as the World Health Organization is concerned, absolutely. Same idea. Um, I think this is, this is an area where uh, we, we have to look at the second level of the constitutions, a new constitutions um, specified. You know, uh, it should talk about the World Health Organization. We're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, again, look back at the first level language and see if there is something we can put into the first level language. The more you can cover the first level language, uh, the easier it's going to sure. be. Sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, the second level of language is, is there in case there are any doubters, you can go back and point to, hey, look, this is what it says in the Constitution. Yes, it's at the second level. But this is what the the intent of the Constitution was, and you know this brings up the whole question of the United Nations, which I believe is really not what it was initially presented as a you know conclave a conclave of people uh, from all these nations talking about you know solutions to world problems, all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. It really is a supranational sovereignty claiming sovereignty over the individual nations that are members of it, and actually claiming sovereignty over those nations that are not members of it as well. You know, saying that we can go militarily into your country and force you to do X, Y, and Z because we are the UN. And uh, that was a huge mistake on the part of uh, uh, those senators who voted for the United Nations back in, I think it was 1948. Uh, And it's interesting to contrast that group of senators with the senators who were presented by what Woodrow Wilson wanted to see ratified, the Treaty of the League of Nations. So the League of Nations was kind of the precursor to uh, the United Nations, and it failed because our country, the United Na- the United States, refused to enter into the League of Nations because the senators said, wait a minute, what we see here is we're surrendering our sovereignty to uh, a higher body that is going to be therefore over us, and we're not going to have sovereignty anymore. We won't do that. No, our, our oath was to uphold the Constitution, not to surrender the sovereignty of these United States. So that's why the League of Nations failed the first time. And then obviously a second attempt to rework things uh, and the United Nations is what came forward. And, you know, many people believed after World War II, oh, we've got to have this way to solve the problems of war and and so on. And the great promise that, oh, wow, if we get this United Nations, we'll bring peace on Earth. Well, wait a minute. What's happened since 1948? (laughs) Indeed, there's been more wars than ever. And by the way, the UN has been part of those wars, you know, the Rwanda massacres were part of what the UN was doing in disarming one tribe of people, which allowed the other tribe to go, you know, massacre just evils. You a long list of the evils the United Nations has done. So I guess the question that I'm not sure what the answer would be to this is we need to get out of the UN. Now, there's a very unlikely process of getting out of the UN under our current constitution and our current structure because uh, there's so many people in power who are connected and uh, you know committed and financially uh, you know there's rewards and so forth but if we're talking about a new constitution we're actually talking about a new government so we're talking about a transition similar to that between the Articles of Confederation government and the constitution proposed in Philadelphia 17 to 87 constitution so there was a secession that took place of each and every state. Ultimately, all 13 states seceded from the Articles of Confederation government and joined 
this new government, which is exactly what the Constitution was doing, a brand new government that was, uh, you know, one that had to deal with, okay, given that we're a new government, what do we do with some of the commitments the old government, the Articles of Confederation government had? For example, regarded indebtedness. And the new constitution said, we are going to adopt all the debts of the previous government, which is unusual because often when an old government repudi- you know, forms a new government, they repudiate the debts. And by the way, I, I'm more in line with repudiating all the debt to the so-called Federal Reserve. That is those uh, beasts of uh, uh, corrupt banksters who are international banksters who have robbed our country for 110 years now that uh, they don't deserve anything. In fact, we shouldn't pay them back any penny we owe. We should actually go repatriate the wealth that they've stolen from our country over 110 years. But so what I'm saying is that in that process of uh, seceding from the old government, there's certain things that can be determined and established that, okay, because we're seceding from the old government and this is a brand new government, the United Nations, is, we're no longer a member state within the United Nations. And I believe that that would be much to our benefit to be out of that uh, tyrannical organization, particularly when we look at what they are up to and what they're seeking to impose upon every nation in the world, including our own, uh, the World Health Organization being the worst example of that kind of, uh, that kind of tyranny. When I was um, New York University, I had a professor in an excellent course on comparative economic systems, John Freed, who had previously worked at the United Nations. He called it the debating society on the East River. <laughs> I mean, basically, it produced nothing but hot air. Well, those were the good yeah, old days. Yeah, we wish that thought produced now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I could tolerate that if we, if we had to. But there's no question that the United Nations, as it's currently structured, has to. Yeah. Now, can we have a framework in, in place, um, like the, the, uh, the Hague, let us say, uh, which is not empowered, but can be invoked um, by sovereign nations, if you will, uh, in international situations. I can see some benefits yes. in that. The key is the key is nothing uh, in the Constitution should even suggest that we can delegate our sovereignty to another body. Amen. The Constitution, the Constitution, in effect, reflects the will of the people and. Uh, the will of the people is sovereign in the final analysis. And so that's a that's a huge task to accomplish because I know that uh, so many of the the people in the elite class in, in our society are connected deeply with that and uh, uh, committed to it uh, no matter what. So yeah, those are those are my thoughts on on what we uh, uh, could do uh, in in refining this, uh, whether a second level or as you're suggesting in some cases at the first level of the text, being able to that. Va- basically back out of what we see clearly as mistakes that have developed uh, in either misinterpretation or misapplication of our current constitution uh, that need to be corrected if we are going to uh, recover freedom in the sweet land of liberty. Now, yeah, we had a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that uh, to make a, a little transition, when we think about what happens when liberty is lost, uh, we could just look at World War II and the tremendous disaster that over, overtook Germany. And the German people were disadvantaged by the end of World War One and, and uh, how that treaty was uh, no, very abusive of them. And therefore, they were, they were uh, economically distressed, extremely distressed. And so they were right for someone like Hitler to rise to power and promise them prosperity and for a little time give them prosperity. But all of the evils done by that regime ultimately had to face 
a tribunal, an international tribunal. So you're talking about something like The Hague, where, yeah, there can be things that at the international level, our country could participate in it. And we did. We did, a, a I think, a masterful job there uh, at Nuremberg when the, the international tribunal was held of the war crimes committed by the Nazis. Yeah, I think um, as, as we look at, at this idea of, uh, you know, considering or just doing this thought experiment about the the uh, idea of a new constitution. We're wrestling, I think, and it's 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 natural. It's it's human nature. It's with our reverence for something that has served us for this period of time, and we have to say, well, is it better than the rest? And yeah, I think so. I think so. But is that relevant to the future? The the important thing here is we must learn from history. We now have two hundred over. 200 years of experience with the current constitution. And if you look at the level of contention in our society, you ask yourself, how did this happen? Clearly, we've gone a long, long way from the original intent of the constitution. And I believe that even though we had thrown together different peoples in the United States, we did that successfully. It's no longer happening that way. We have to ask ourselves the question, why is the current constitution perhaps a culprit in this. Can it be improved? And unless we're, our lines are open to improvement, we're also close to that. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you've done some writing on Nuremberg that I think would be valuable for our listeners to to access. Is that going to be available uh, shortly? Well, my, my hope is that uh, it's going to leak out, I think, this, this week. But basically, um, I discovered the Nuremberg uh, somehow, and I can't even remember how I did it. But basically, uh, we all remember the top Nazis being uh, convicted at Nuremberg. That was the primary and the initial trial. There were 12 other tr uh, trials, I believe. And the first one, and probably the, the one that got the most attention, but most people today don't know about, is the, uh, the, the doctor's trial, it's called, of the Nazi doctors and the experiments that they were doing on human subjects. Now, those experiments were limited to their own undesirables, as they call them, plus the undesirables of the nations they conquered. As a result of that trial, seven Nazi doctors were executed. Now, we can get into the fine points of that ex post facto law, and I'll recognize that argument. But I think the point today is we executed seven Nazi doctors. And yet since then, there has been nothing incorporated, to my knowledge, in American law anywhere, such that the principles of the, that trial have ever been recognized. In other words, today, legally, the government and individuals may involve the entire nation in something like the COVID-19 control program that ultimately is a, uh, a, a human experimentation on a massive scale, greater than why, why we uh, executed those documents. Now, there's a document that comes out of this. It's called the Nuremberg Code, and it has seven points, or pardon me, 10 points. And <clears throat> I got into it, wrote an article about it, when I was all finished and so forth. And then I'm starting to see something from a physician from the, the West Coast. Um, and he's addressing the same things, but in greater detail, medically. And ultimately, this is something that has to be addressed medically. His name is Dr. Bednarski, uh, Dr. Nicholas Bednarski. I looked at my stuff and I looked at his and I said, well, maybe my introduction is good, but he's got the, he's got the meat. And so I, <clears throat> I just supported him in a new article that's, that is going out. 
basically what he has done is to identify all 10 points of the uh, Nuremberg Code that have been violated by the COVID-19 control mm. program. Wow. Um, I am very interested in seeing that as, as soon as that's available, Bill, because that's been my sense that this is a this is a criminal action, a war crime, so to speak, that, that has taken place. Because as we know, the shot, the what they wanted to call a vaccine, which, by the way, they redefined the word vaccine at the WHO. They said, we're going to use a new definition. And the new definition included these uh, experimental uh, injections of messenger RNA, which is what the shots were. So uh, this this experiment, it was always by experimental use authorization. There was no authorization to say, we've tested this and we did it on the lab rats and that was successful. Here's the data on that. And then we did it on selected humans and did it on pregnant women and we did it on children. And so none, none of that was done. Not one, because all the people getting the shot were the experiment group. And they were not being told that they were being experimented on. They were being deceived and, oh, you got to get this shot. You're going to get very sick. You're going to die. But if you get this shot, what would Biden say? You won't get COVID. You won't go to the hospital and you won't die. Exactly lies. Many people who took the shot got COVID. Many people who took the shot went to the hospital and millions also died from taking the shot. So this was a vast experiment. But people were not told that they were being experimented on. That's a war crime. So I think you're right. We uh, Hopefully this paper will be uh, uh, used as a tool to create a Nuremberg 2.0. And Fauci ought to be the first one put on trial as a, as a war criminal. Because there's people who've been, who are now dead because he chose to experiment on them without their knowledge, without, out their, position, without their permission. So is that my, that my sense of what the, the article is going to contain? Uh, you're absolutely on target. Um, Dr. Vednarski gets into the issue of messenger RNA, and he identifies it as a non-vaccine, and he goes through and he uses some medical terms, but the beauty of his explanation is an intelligent layperson can follow his logic. And he has basically said, here is the danger in using this messenger RNA, which was never tested adequately according to the Nuremberg Code. And by the way, the Nuremberg Code has been expanded by something. He added this. Uh, it's called the Helsinki Declaration, which is just more explicit. So basically, uh, he's going into all of those areas. And I think every one of us should be looking at the Nuremberg. Uh, it's accessible online, by the way. Just put in Nuremberg Code, uh, North Carolina, which is the University of North Carolina Research. And they have a magnificent uh, section on the on the just read the, make a copy of it. And the next time you have a doctor's visit, bring it in and confront the physician, the physician and say, uh, <clears throat> where do you stand on this? Do you know anything about the Nuremberg Code? Uh, it's not going to take too many of those incidents before the physicians, before the entire medical establishment. We don't feel very comfortable with our patients knowing more about medical ethics than mm -hmm. we they're going to change their tune in. <laughs> and they need to, because what was done against the American people was a crime. It, our whole country was a crime scene. It was a crime against humanity. That language is used specifically. And so if people are being experimented on unknowingly, you know, like we think of the uh, Tuskegee experiment, the Tuskegee Airmen who were all inflicted with syphilis. They, do, they didn't know what they were. They're just told, you know, you're in the army here, get these shots and the shot turns out that they uh, contract syphilis and they didn't cure them of syphilis. They 
studying them to see what the stages of disease and death were like. So they wanted to say, oh, what does syphilis do to a human being? Let's let's experiment with these Tuskegee airmen. That was a crime. And I really don't know that anybody was punished for that crime, but they should have been because they took these subjects who did not know what was being done to them. I imagine many of these men, had they known that they were going to be experimented on and they were going to be tested by being injected with syphilis, and then they would experience all the symptoms of that disease and perhaps even death, and they were not going to be treated for it. In other words, they're going to be given the disease syphilis, but not treated and allowed to die so that the Mengele-like doctors would have an opportunity to look at, say, ah, yeah, what happens to a person as they have syphilis and it takes over their system and ultimately kills them? It is so evil. This is the Nazi doctors, you know, the kind of Dr. Mengele uh, that we have in our day. Sadly, I think many doctors went along with this, not knowing that they were actually permitted, you know, participating in a Dr. Mengele-like human experimentation. Uh, but they should have known if they knew what, you know, experimental use authorization is all about. This hasn't been tested on lab rats. I saw one cartoon of one rat lab rat talking to another lab rat. And the one lab rat said to the, his fellow rat, lab rat, oh, have you got your COVID-19 shot yet? And the other lab rat turned to him and said, well, no, I'm waiting for the human experiments, the results of the human experiments to come back. That's <laughs> 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 exactly what we had. <laughs> so it, yeah, this well, will be published in various uh, sources or platforms? Well, I, I, I hope so. Uh, I don't know how the publishing will, will turn out. Uh, I was informed by one of the individuals involved, there are three of us now, that he had gone out and, and uh, released it to various websites and so forth and so on. I ought to call that a leak. I'm not mad about mm -hmm. it, if anything. He goes, I just want the word out there. And, and um, I think this is going to be so shocking. And then if you think of this, and now right behind it, we've got the, the Dr. Rand, Senator Rand Paul's book on deception. Mm -hmm. What happened? He's basically documented the case of increase in function, mm -hmm. gain of function. Uh, study yeah. that was done at the yeah gain of function. Well, we'll, look, the, we'll uh, look forward to hearing we'll the, the location uh, maybe by next week, and we invite you to join us all next week here. We the people, the Constitution matters on WFYL. Also, check out the website eleven eighty WFYL dot com and go down to the very bottom of the podcast list because We the People, the Constitution matters. Excellent resources there. Invite your friends to join us 8 a.m. Friday morning. We the people, the Constitution matters. 